Can I ask you to pray together with me? And gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to you, we come out of a, a, a time and a heart of worship. And we know that, as it says in the scriptures, you inhabit the worship of your people. And knowing your presence, Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds by the power of your spirit to be able to see you in the, in the full dimensions that you possess even now in our lives. So that we might trust you, that, Lord, we might, in giving ourselves to you, Lord, be able to see how much you give of yourself to us, not only in forgiveness, but, Lord, in the creation of who you meant us to be from the beginning of time as the men and women of God. I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now, this morning, I'm going to invite you to, to return with me to the 20th chapter of the Gospel of Luke as we have been studying through during this season in approaching Easter. And you realize that that is a very long day in chapter 20. It comes right after Palm Sunday that, that Jesus went to the temple and a lot of things happened. It's the closing moments of what has proven to be a long day of challenge, or better yet, a day of challenge for those who would oppose Jesus Christ. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me there to Luke chapter 20 as we look at verse 40. Now, I have a guilty confession to make. When I first read verse 40, I couldn't help but get the same sort of feeling uh, I, I get when I watch Saturday morning, or I'm sorry, I would get if I were to watch Saturday morning cartoons. Not that I do. Just consider the cartoons that you may see on Saturday mornings. Some of the great matchups that have occurred over the years. Tom and Jerry, Sylvester and Tweety, uh, Wiley Coyote and Roadrunner. They each have the same formula, every single one of those cartoons. A formula for comedy, where the villain actually then becomes the victim of his own devices. I mean, the Acme Anvil always lands on the coyote, uh, not the roadrunner, beep, beep. And the predator is, is always hoisted on his own petard. Now, I have always wanted to say that in a sermon, being hoisted on his own petard, okay? And so here in Luke chapter 20, in verse 40, those who would oppose Jesus get hoisted up on their own petard, it seems, because they become victims of their own malice. We read that malice back in chapter 19, verse 47, because their motives were very clear. They were trying to find a way to kill him. And they thought to attack him professionally, asking in verse 2, what are your credentials? And when that didn't work, they launched into a political attack in verse 21. And then finally, a theological attack in verse 28. And in each case, Acme's anvil is... Is, is landing. It's, it's a bombardment of anvils. And Jesus is left unscathed until, in verse 40, his enemies are left speechless and, and looking to retreat and, and go to that cave in the desert and lick their wounds. That, that, more than anything else, explains their silence that we read of in verse 40. No one dared ask him any more questions. <laughs> any volunteers? Who's the next one to uh, discover the anvil? Who's next? Among the group, I'm sure they're saying, are you kidding? We've had enough. 
And it's at that particular moment then Jesus does something very curious. He turns the tables on them and he asks them a question. Let me read that question in verse 41. Jesus said to them, how is it that they say Christ is the son of David? Now, before I go too far with this question, I have to explain his intentions here. Some commentators see Jesus here as the master debater, that he sees his opponents on the ropes and he's heading in for the kill. And, 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 and part of that does seem to make sense. But on the surface, while it makes sense to us, I guess it makes sense to us because that's what we would do. We'd always like to get the last word in, wouldn't we? But that's not the Jesus way. He didn't come to earth to win debates. We read the purpose of the Gospel of Luke in chapter 19 when it says that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, to save souls. Yours, mine, theirs, the opponents, all of us as well. That's not the Jesus way. When he asks the question here, in ways he is actually paying these authorities uh, something of a compliment. Follow me closely here. We talked about this some weeks, maybe even months ago, when we were talking about the rabbinic practice of asking questions. And and, and there existed a, a, a code of honor among the teachers and the rabbis where to ask a question was actually an act of great honor. We know that to be true. I mean, you, you get that feeling when somebody asks you a question seeking your opinion, don't you? The, the question itself is a sign of respect, especially given this particular setting in the temple. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's the high and holy days, and the teachers and the rabbis are there by the score, so many. And, and for the temple authorities to ask Jesus these questions on the surface was an honor, and that's why they called him teacher to begin with in verse 21. They called him teacher to begin with, and they called him teacher to end with in verse 39. But forget for the moment that they were trying to kill him. They were at least trying to be polite about it. And in turn, it was entirely appropriate then for Jesus to return the honor by asking them a question. How is it that they say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, it's not that Jesus doesn't know the answer. It's that they needed to articulate their own answer. Because I have to believe in the mind of of Jesus, if they were able to articulate their own answer, it would save their souls. I am utterly convinced that Jesus isn't, isn't really concerned here about scoring debate points. Instead, it is all about saving their souls. And ours as well. And this is one heartfelt appeal being made, quite possibly while their minds have been broken down by the debate and their souls have been softened by the truth to the point where they might actually be able to connect the dots in order to see their Savior, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, standing right there in front of them. And I mean it when they would say that they would be seeing their Messiah when they would see Christ because that is exactly what the name Christ means. Messiah. Some of you have study notes in your Bible, and in verse 41, there may be a little mark by the name of Christ that directs you to a note on the study part that says, or Messiah, because the name Christ in Greek means the anointed one. 
and was used to translate the Hebrew word Messiah. And in the Old Testament, the Messiah was known to be the central figure of God arriving in human form, invading planet Earth in majesty and power, and his coming was predicted by all the prophets. Isaiah chapter uh, uh, 33, um, uh, uh, Amos chapter 8. And in the prophecies of his coming, his string of credentials included, most prominently, a connection to King David. Isaiah, speaking of the Messiah, said, he will reign, this Messiah will reign on David's throne in chapter 9, verse 7. And Jeremiah quotes God by saying, I will raise up to David, King David, a righteous branch, this, the Messiah. The Messiah, the Christ, was already identified as being a descendant of David, and, and nothing less than a descendant of David would do when it came to the Messiah. No other bloodline would qualify. Israel would have a king. God had made that promise. The world would have a king, and that king would be known with all the dimensions of David. It was a profound connection for those who were theologically inclined, and even more for the general population at large. So much so that that the popular term for the Messiah in Jesus' day was Son of David. That was the name that the sick people would use when they came to Jesus for divine healing. Remember the blind man in Jericho? He said, Son of David, if you will, you can heal me. And in some ways, just that concept of David... uh, expressed the aspirations of the people's heart. People who had been smashed under the boot of the Roman legions, it was nice to think that there would be a ruler who would be even greater than Caesar or a son of Caesar, but a ruler who would come from God who would be the son of David. (laughs) Now into this mix, Jesus tosses a scriptural surprise. He quotes a verse, actually, from Psalm 110, and you'll notice that in reading in Luke chapter uh, 20, that it is a, it's a quotation of a psalm. Jesus is quoting scriptures here. Psalm 110, is, it is the one psalm above all others which is devoted to the Messiah in the book of Psalms that David pens. In Psalm 110, it's a regal psalm describing what Israel's ideal king would be. And Jesus quotes one verse to make sure that everyone knew that it came straight from King David himself. He says it this way in Luke chapter 20. David himself declares in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make the enemies, make, make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now the big question that Jesus is posing is, if David himself calls this one Lord, how then can he be David's son? It's a good question. How can the Messiah be both David's son and David's Lord? Especially if the Messiah was only a human being. Now the answer was really so obvious that Jesus really didn't have to say another thing. He just has to put that dot on the paper and wait to see if they are able to make the connection. Will they get it? You see, the Messiah, the son of David, is more than a human. 
He is divine. He is the Son of God as well as the Son of Man. So if he is the Son of David as the Son of Man, he still is also the Son of God. He's more than just a human being. And before the end of the week, he, the Son of David, would die in fulfillment of the Messianic prophecies. And as the next week would begin, would would begin, he would rise in mighty resurrection that would make everything clear about his unique personality, both his humanity and his divinity. And as Paul writes in Romans, regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ is Lord. That is what we read in Romans chapter 1, verse 3. That is all to be seen, to be known, to be revealed. And there are some questions that require days and weeks and even months of debate to solve, but in reality, this question struck his opponents like lightning. How is it that David calls the son of David Lord in reality becomes, how is it that you don't call the Son of David Lord yourselves. Walter Meyer of the Lutheran Hour writes, he said, if Christ is not divine, then lay the book aside. Every blessing faith resigned that has so long been yours and mine through many a trying day, forget the place of bend and need and dream no more of worlds to be. If Christ is not divine, go seal again the tomb, take down the cross, redemption sign, quench all the stars of hope that shine, and let us turn and travel along uh, that night that knows no dawn. If Christ is not divine, just give up. But if he is, If he is, if David looks at him and says the son of David is Lord, if he is, if his actions confirm what the prophets have promised, if he is, and David the king calls him Lord, what about you? What does that mean for you and what you say when you see Jesus? What, is, what, what would it be if, if you were able to connect the dots and come to the same conclusion about Jesus Christ that had already been made by David? The Bible says that you would finally connect with the power and the love of God in an intimate and a very personal way. We read in 1 Timothy that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Jesus Christ. The the man who was the Messiah, the only one able to bridge that gap between heaven and earth being fully human and fully divine. That, in part, is the confession in David's psalm. In verse 42, where, where God, the Lord, says to Jesus, who in David's term is my Lord, sit up my hand, it, 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 It endows Jesus with a position of authority and power to be the mediator, the only mediator to be found between God and man. Which raises the question, what is he doing today with all of that authority? Now, I'm not quite sure what to make of the rest of that quote that Jesus brings about putting the enemies under the seat, being seated and 
in the position of authority, but then also being engaged in, in making a footstool out of the enemies. I, I've read the theologians, and I'm not quite sure what to make out of it, uh, except uh, something very personal. It, it, it gives an indication of what he's doing right now in stamping out his enemies. He is, because he has the authority, the only one capable of putting his foot down on the things that oppose him and the things that oppose him on your life and mine. I, I, I would like to think, and, and, and this is more my imagination that at play than anything else in looking at this, uh, that, that, that on a personal level, as I face the greatest enemy of all, that of sin, that Jesus is in the position right now of stamping out in my life what I cannot do myself, and in yours as well. And he's making a footstool out of what he stamps. It's almost like he's looking at the effects of sin and he's turning it into wine by stomping on it. I'm sorry, I'm playing with this illustration a little bit here, but I'm thinking to myself, he has the authority to do what what we cannot do. So what does that mean for you and me? It means that Jesus is able to bring to us things that cannot be found in this world and yet things that you and I so desperately need. (laughs) When I first became a Christian, a a friend challenged me. (laughs) These are back in the early days of being in Navigator's discipleship and just discovering my faith. And, And he challenged me to make a list. He said, Make a list, and on the heading, say, why is it so good to belong to Jesus Christ? Make that your mission in life, he said. It was way back when I was like 18 years old, and so I I, I started composing this list. Why is it so good to belong to Jesus Christ, to call him Lord? I I would really suggest that, that this be a practice that you do as well. And over the years, that, that list that I, I, I've been keeping has been growing longer and longer and longer and longer, and I am not going to share it with you this morning because it would take so long to read. But just off the top, as I look at that list, I realize there are a couple of general headings that speak of the wonder and the glory and the richness of calling Jesus Christ Lord. One, why is it so good to call Jesus Christ my Lord is because he really does understand what I face in life and I don't have to explain things to him in great detail because he already knows. He cares. And he has more sympathy for me. He has more sympathy for you as well, having lived a human experience that allows him to be able to come to you with true empathy, not just sympathy, empathy. He's able to enter in to our life experience. That's what we find in the portrait of the Messiah, the the, the Christ that is painted in the book of Hebrews. We read in Hebrews chapter 4, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, and yet without sin, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we might receive, receive from him mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I won't even begin to think of the challenges that you face. 
the, the opposition that, you've, that you find as you make your way through life. But I do know that there is a Lord who knows you and loves you and cares for you and has the authority to be able to put his foot down on those things. And he does it because he cares for you and he knows you. Better than you even know yourself. And I can be confident that he understands and he cares. Are, are, do you understand the richness of that confidence? It's one of the great things about being able to call Jesus Lord. Here's another. Why is it so good to call Jesus my Lord? Not only does he understand with a depth of empathy, not only does he care, but, but he is able to do something about it. It's one thing to be sympathetic. Oh, I'm really sorry about what you're facing. But it's another thing to be able to say, let me do something about it. He has an ability to be able to do something in your life. We read that again in Hebrews chapter 2, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help. Put those words together. That in itself is a great one to have on your list. He is able to help, aid those just like you and me who are being tempted. You may hear the, the word temptation and, and, and cringe because you realize that the, that, that the word temptation has resulted in something in your life and is something called shame. And just hearing that word might begin to bring a reminder of guilt to you. And Jesus knows the meaning of that word. And nearly 2,000 years ago, he stood alone on earth before Satan and all the force of temptation, and he shattered it. He put his foot down. And now, because the God-man stands for us in heaven and in our heart, firmly planted in both places, we have no need to be afraid because it's not just ours. The battle we face is his. The battle belongs to the Lord. So why is it so good to be able to call Jesus Lord? He understands, he cares, he helps, and he does it with power, omnipotent power. We read in 2 Peter, as well as his ability, he says, the Lord is able, he has the power to rescue godly people from all trials. That's you and me. Which makes him, in my mind, fully worthy of our trust, of our surrender, of our commitment, of our faith. Those words in, in 1 Peter were written by one who knew, the Apostle Peter himself, one who was really familiar with the fear and failure that came in the face of temptation, someone who understood what it was to melt under that sort of pressure. And he was also the one who knew what it was to be then restored by the one who was called Lord, Jesus Christ, the one who loved him so. And Jesus loves you too. <laughs> And what he has for you is, is really something else. you just got to believe it. I love the way C.S. Lewis drew that conclusion when he wrote, But supposing God became man. Suppose our human nature, which can suffer and die, was amalgamated with God's nature in one person. Then that person could help us. He could surrender his will and suffer and die because he was man, and he could do it perfectly. Because he was God, you and I can go through this process only if God does it in us. And God can do it only if he became man, Jesus. 
And God will do it only if we become his Christian. And if he is able to do all these things, and if Christ is all of that, and if in the eyes of the one who knows best, David, who is the king, in seeing this, bows his head and calls him Lord, what does that say for you? What does that say for me? What's it going to be? We have the opportunity even now to add our voice in obedience to the king and call him Lord. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, in our worship, we, we deliberately put our way in, in the place of encounter. We, we actually expose ourselves to see you as you are. And Lord, I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would remove all doubt from our hearts and our minds as to who you are, so that, Lord, our hearts might be open for all you are able to do. So in obedience to your claim on our lives, for you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, in obedience to your claim in our lives, we give ourselves to you even now. And Lord, out of your gracious love and your great mercy, I pray that you would go to work in our lives as well. That might strengthen us with the confidence and comes of the Holy Spirit that would allow us to even turn to you now and be able to say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. You are my Lord. And in your name we pray. Amen.